your host, Just James, and today we will be talking about the 2014 film Last Shift. This is episode 23. Welcome back, listener, to the Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James, and today we are talking about the 2014 film Last Shift. Now, I did discuss this a couple of weeks ago on the Gravely Serious podcast with the crew out there. We discussed a little bit of this film, but mostly Malum, which was the reimagining of this film by the same director. So, I'm going to talk about both a little bit on this one, but mainly Last Shift because that's we didn't really discuss that film in depth. So I'm going to, since I watched both films before we had that episode, I decided to do my own episode about the original film, Last Shift. However, I would say go to the Gravely Series podcast, listen to the Malum episode. You can hear us go on and on about that one and discuss a little bit of the parallels that I'm going to discuss today. This film was directed by Anthony. De Blasi. I'm not real for sure what else that he's directed that's of note other than maybe Malum when it came out. And I can't remember if it came out this year or whatever. But the and, and really the actors in it, there's no big name actors that I think are instantly recognizable. But I will say the main character, her name is Juliana Harkov. It's either me, Harkovy or Harkovy. I don't know where the emphasis goes on that one. But since last shift she has been introduced to the dc universe and apparently she plays the character black canary which is dina drake i'm gonna assume that those are the same people but one is like the hero side and the other one is like her not hero side i don't know i don't really keep up with the dc universe stuff i mean you know not i mean there's so many films now it's super hard to keep up with them so anyway that's who she plays i think she would i haven't seen her but i'm assuming she plays a great superhero character because I'm going to guess that the transition for her to play a superhero type character is pretty easy just based on her performance in Last Shift. She's a very, uh, she just has that superhero look to her, just everything, her her demeanor, her whole aura, everything, uh, you know, it just, uh, I think she projected that a lot in Last Shift. So yeah, I could see her being Black Canary, you know, or any other superhero, so very cool. I'm, you know, maybe I'll check that out. So if you've had a chance to listen to the Malum episode on Gravely Serious, I referred to Last Shift and Malum as one's a grower and one's a shower. What I mean by that is Last Shift is definitely a grower because it doesn't give you everything. It doesn't show you everything. It builds suspense. It builds the the dread and all that using, uh, you know, the absence of sound, its use of uh, light and shadows. I mean, it's just kind of a, an expert way to use this high contrasting light with these deep, deep, dark corner shadows. And it has all these overlays of voices and whispers, just how the scenes, what I feel like is with the first one, you know, the director probably didn't have as much money, not as big a budget, obviously, to make this movie. So he had to try a lot harder and he worked a lot harder because I'm sure with this film, you know, it, Undoubtedly, he was trying to prove, you know, that he can make a film like this and that it can be successful. And that's what gave him the popularity to be able to finance the bigger budgeted movie, which was cool. I liked both films and Malum was cool. I like that it did show a lot of things that it did, but it definitely, as far as the fear factor goes, I'm going to say Last Shift was a scarier movie because it didn't give me everything on the screen. And Malum was more of kind of your summer, 
you know, or, you know, pre-Halloween flick kind of thing just to kind of get you ready for the season. That That's how I felt as I watched both films. But that's enough about that. Let's get into it. Now, another thing you need to know about these films is they very much mirror each other as far as what happens. So both opening scenes are the nearly the exact same. They're, you know, almost frame for frame. How they're shot is the exact same. And I think this is great when you watch them side by side, this comparison, you can actually see, like I said, the different uses of light and shadows and silence and all that kind of stuff. I will say, though, in Malum, the, you know, the original, it, it has like a flashback scene in the beginning that is way better than Last Shift. And if anything, that's probably my favorite scene out of Malum anyway. And it, it's, I'm not saying it should have been in Last Shift, but it definitely added something to Malum that gave it a little bit of teeth. So our movie starts with Officer Lauren, and she's in a squad car talking to her mom and basically letting us, the audience, know that this is her first shift and that her mother really does not want her to do this job. And then she says something about, you know, look how your dad turned out and all that. So we're starting to kind of build this story of she's super nervous about her first shift. She's not getting support from her mother and something, we don't know what yet, bad has happened with her dad. And we're going to assume, I did anyway from watching it, that this is going to be either he was killed in duty or suicide or something that comes along with the negative effects of the stressful job, you know, of, of being a cop in a city. I think there's even a scene during this or where the mom says something well, no, no, no. Officer Lauren says something like, you know, most police officers go their whole career and never have to fire their gun or something like that. And the mom says, yeah, tell that to your dad. And it's a super deep cut, you know, you can tell in the conversation. So, uh, yeah, just kind of sets the tone. Kind of know what you're getting into. Anyway, Officer Lauren goes into the police station and she's looking around. It's all the lights are all turned off and everything. And you see or you hear some guy just like beating the shit out of a locker or something. And he's way down this hallway again. Parts of it are really brightly lit, but the darkness between where she's at and where he's at just, it just, it's almost like it eats the light, you know, because the parts that are so brightly lit and such a high contrast that it makes any shadow that's, you know, appears on screen is just really deep and rich. So you just have to watch it to see what I mean by that, I guess. But anyway, it shows him beating up a locker. She's watching him for a minute. He finally turns and sees her. And there's this really awkward part where he's telling her to turn around and not to look at him, which is strange, you know, because I guess when I was watching, I didn't really understand why he was asking, like, why he didn't want her to look at her. I mean, it's almost like he got, you know, like someone opened the door on him having a little gentleman time or something. You know what I mean? It was just such a weird scene. So he, he tells her all that and he walks up behind her and starts asking her who she is or whatever, finds out. Ask her how long she's been standing there, whatever. Then he starts giving her the rundown about the station. Basically what happened is this station is getting shut down because of a new station being built. And there's some hazmat issues that are present. And so there's a hazmat crew coming really early in the morning. And her job is just to stay there, hold the place down. If anyone shows up, direct them to the new station until the hazmat crew shows up. That's it. Easy, right? It's her first shift. Easy job for a first shifter. She's kind of getting the crap into the stick. And he's letting her know that that's just the way it is. So another thing about this film is it's shot with, I, I, I don't know if it's the film or the camera or how this is determined, how stuff looks, but it doesn't look like super high def. Like you can tell it's a, it's a lower budget movie, but I think by the end of it, it's, it adds to its charm and, you know, 
culty film type of vibe, you know, that would that would put this in a cult classic type. You know, this movie not might not be super popular now, but I think on down the road, it will be one of those kind of cult classic films. All right, so Sergeant Cohen, which was the guy that was talking to her earlier, he leaves and basically says she's got until 4 a.m. And one of the things I do like that, it doesn't take a long time for stuff to start happening. You know, with her being in an empty station, you're kind of wondering like, okay, how are we going to start building the dread? How are we going to start amping stuff up? And it starts with a phone call. So she gets a phone call on the line. Again, she was told that people might call in and it get, might get routed to this number instead of dispatch, and she just needs to forward them on. So some girl calls in, and she sounds like she's kind of whispering and crying or whatever, and she says everyone's dead and then hangs up. So Officer Lauren calls the dispatch center and says that there's no reason she should be getting these calls. And she, you know, of course, he also asks her, like, did you get any information? Did you find out where she's at? And you can see it on her face that she's kind of thinking, like, oh, yeah, that's something, you know, that's rookie stuff. I should know to do that, and I didn't know to do that. And this will be a theme throughout the film where she's super hard on herself. And it's going to be a combination of her wanting to, I guess, where her dad was a police officer, and when we find out what happens to him, she's wanting to kind of rebuild that legacy, so to say. And she's just super hard on herself. I mean, throughout the movie, she's, like, quoting parts of the police officer's handbook and, and uh, reciting different, you know like police mantras I guess or, or or laws or something like that and yeah so she's uh wanting to be this super straight laced type cop that really knows her job she really wants to impress now also once the phone calls start we kind of start getting like the flickery lights and you know the noises just kind of in other rooms or deep in the hallway somewhere you start hearing some stuff just in at first like I said there's a lot of parts about this film I really it's almost like it has to warm up like an old car or something I mean the 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 first part of the film because you don't really know what you're getting into there wasn't really a lot of hype for this film when it came out so you're like oh it's just just some kind of cheesy you know sci-fi network film that's going to be you know just okay but then once it gets rolling I think it turns into a really good film which obviously is why I think they felt comfortable making a, a reimagining of this obviously so another thing that this movie does is it's got some really great framed shots and officer lauren when she's moving around the station it the the camera follows her and so it's almost like you're with her like you're kind of like her partner in this and going through the station and hearing all these sounds and everything which i thought was a uh, really cool and it really kind of puts you in that perspective of that you are with her on this shift as well so I thought that was really cool because the second film did not do that. The second film was just like watching a film. It was all this third person, you know, long shot, uh, bird's eye view type thing, you know, corner camera type thing. It just felt like I was watching a movie. It's kind of the difference, and I'd covered this before with the Blair Witch stuff. You know, it's the difference between Blair Witch, the first one, and then Blair Witch 2. So these two films, I think, contrast a lot like those two films do, where one was you know, more kind of rough cut documentary style, you know, guerrilla, you know, video editing, that kind of stuff. You know, it just had some, some, some real edge to it. And the second one was just a straightforward, you know, money grab summer flick. And one more camera trick that I'll point out is a lot of time, if it's not focused on Officer Lauren, it does these kind of zoom in creep shots that are shot like below her waistline and they kind of come in so it, it gives you the idea that there is this ghost or phantasm or whatever this thing is that's haunting the station is coming around her. if you think like 
like evil dead shots, how those are, those big, long tracking shots of, you know, oh, this is supposed to be whatever the bad thing is, and it's moving around the place. So the shot where the thing was, like, jumping around the cabin and moving, you didn't actually get to see what it was, but it showed you, like, their POV kind of stuff. So, yeah, I thought that was cool, and it worked really well with this film. And the camera movement. So anytime there's a panning shot or it's trying to show you the rest of the room or Officer Lauren's moving or something like that, even though the camera is moving, it will keep her in the center of the frame, which it has a really weird effect on you when you're watching it. I, I can't really describe it. You'll just have to watch it and check it out. But when the camera moves and keeps her in the center, what that does is it doesn't let you see outside, I guess what she can't see so you can't really see like the peripheral so you're hearing all these sounds and stuff but the camera's not panning to the side and giving you this wide view angle for you to check out the room to see like oh shit what was that i don't know because she won't turn her head and look so i'm stuck on the same view of where she's looking and yeah just cool like i said it's just the just kind of maybe some basic you know film school style techniques that they use to just make this film something better than initially what you thought you were getting into. All right, so moving on. There is a scene shortly after this where she sits down to eat something and she's biting into this, I can't remember what is a burger or something like that, and she there's a hair in it, which is, okay, you know, whatever, there's a hair in it. But as she pulls it out, like her arm extends all the way out and the hair just keeps coming. You know, the hair just keeps, the hair just keeps coming out. And so she pulls it, pulls it, and as she's doing this, she ends up hearing a knock, goes to investigate, and there's no one there. There's a knock on the front door of this station. Everything is locked up, remember, so people can't just walk in. And uh, there's nobody there. And then she turns around in the lobby, and what is it? It's a bum taking a big, hot bum piss in the middle of her lobby. Now, for this scene, she goes out there, and she's trying to tell him to leave. And, you know, she's handling him. I, I, I would say it's just kind of kid gloves, just trying to get him out. You know, she's not trying to beat the dude up or nothing or, or roughhouse him. You know, she just wants him out of the station. And she gets him out. And earlier she was checking the station out and she found some old boots. She remembered those boots and she went out, got those, and left them outside for the homeless guy because she noticed that he didn't have any shoes on. And so even though this scene wasn't necessary and really didn't add anything, you know, to the to the bum or anything like that. I think they were just trying to show that, again, Officer Lauren is, you know, a, a good-hearted person. You know, even though this guy just took a, a, a piss in her lobby, she wants to make sure that this guy at least isn't out there on the streets without shoes. She gives him these old boots from the evidence room or whatever, so. She's a nice lady. So she decides to start making some rounds at the station, and she's walking around checking some stuff out, and she ends up finding her dad's old locker, and she opens it up, and there's a, I think, I think it's a picture of her and him together in this locker. And the weirdest fucking music choice happens at this, this is the only time that it happens. Everywhere else, everything kind of makes sense. There's a couple of weird, like, pipe horn noises that didn't make sense a few times in the film. But when she's at her dad's locker, it plays this solo acoustic guitar thing that is just so out of place and for whatever reason is loud as shit like it's super loud and I know it's supposed to be a flashback and to show this melancholy like I miss you dad kind of moment but the guitar was just so loud and for me did not fit that mood that it really ruined that scene so you're having this moment you're feeling all the sads you're getting into all the feels and she ends up putting she ends up putting the picture back in the locker. She was going to keep it, I guess, and then she decided better she wanted to leave it there because I guess the station is closing down. She wants to leave that 
that memory behind, leave it there as a memento or whatever. And when she goes to shut the locker, all the lockers in the locker room are open. Now, that doesn't sound that scary, right? But when she went in there, they were all closed. And so when she shuts that door and the camera allows you to see past that locker door, all of them are open. It gives you kind of like a bird's eye view. And all the lockers are open. And it is kind of like an oh shit moment. Because you've heard stuff. A couple of weird things have happened. But this is the first time where something just super unexplainable, like, here we go kind of thing happens in the film. You know, it gives you that little chicken skin. And you're like, all right, this is what we came for. Here we go. So around this time, she ends up getting a second phone call from the person that called earlier. And she gets a name this time. The girl's name is Monica. And she says that she can hear pigs. And she keeps saying they're coming and they're coming to get her. They're going to find her, all this stuff. And then we start getting some jump scares. We start hearing some clanging. And there's these big, like, rolling shelves. I don't know if you know what that means, but there's, like, shelves that slide on tracks. And so those, those things start banging and clanging behind her while she's on the phone. And... The jump scares, again, they didn't have a lot to work with, so it's just kind of added in there. Almost almost too much, but it's like right at the threshold. I still, it, it wasn't too over the top with the jump scares, but I think they were tastefully put in there, even if they were kind of often. So she's trying to figure out why these things are moving, and there's plenty, I will say this though, okay? There's plenty of times in this film where you're going to be like, you need to just get the fuck out of there, okay? I'm going to tell you, I, I love scary movies and haunted house stories and all that kind of stuff for my jam i love that shit but i'm not hanging i'm not hanging out like it's a couple of weird you know i can bypass a few things a couple of knocks on the wall or whatever but as soon as something super weird happens like i'm out you know you call me whatever you want but i i can't fight a ghost i don't think i haven't tried but who knows maybe i don't know but what i'm saying is i'm out i'm out okay and she's not a couple of weird things happen and again though i think that is going to go back to her character as just being you know, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to fail. I have to do this for me, for my dad, for my family name, whatever it is. She can do this. She's going to be successful. She's trained to do this. And yeah, this is the hill that she's going to die on. She's going to be the perfect cop. So as she's walking around the station, trying to just figure out where all these sounds and everything is coming from, she finds a back door that's open. She radios it in. She's letting them know on her, uh, I guess her dispatch radio that, you know, hey, the door's open. I, I might have someone that has broken in. She's already dealt with the bum once. And then the radio, she starts hearing this singing, this almost like little kids singing on the radio, kind of like a, like in like Freddy Krueger when all the little kids are singing. You know, you start hear this like chanty kind of singing. After she radios it in, she starts looking around to try to figure out. She's, she's assuming that it's the bum, right, because she's already met with him once and he got in somehow so she's thinking it's him she does end up finding him in an evidence room and now in the second film we find out that the bum well the second film in malum we found out that bum is actually the father of one of the girls that was killed by this cult that we're going to be introduced to later and i, I didn't catch that in the first film it that might have been the whole point and maybe i just you know kind of glossed over it or whatever but yeah it it makes sense now but i don't know if it was super apparent in the first film let me know if it was if you know let me know in the comments where that where it let me know that that's who that individual was like maybe it was on the box that he was digging through or maybe something he had screamed when he was kind of babbling but i, w I really would like to know if there was a point in the, f the first film that set him out as the father of one of the victims so she ends up wrestling around with this bum she gets him in handcuffs and he's quite a bit bigger than her, but she's no, uh, 
she's no just, you know, pushover. She's a, she's a tough lady. She is one tough lady, and she looks tough and serious. And I really like her character and their choice of her for this film. And I will say I liked her better as Officer Lauren than in the second film. And I was going to talk about this later, but I'll go ahead and talk about it now. In the second film, in Malum, I felt like Officer Lauren, they really softened her up. They gave her a softer appearance. They made her kind of meek and sheepish and just uh, like a like a scaredy cat. But in the first film, I felt like Officer Lauren was very tough, strong, and resolute and confident, even though she had those insecurities about wanting to be the best officer that she could. She stood very tall, you know, with her shoulders back. Her hair was, you know, perfectly in this perfect, I guess, not military style, but I, you know, it's, you just have to see it. You'll know what I mean, but it's just really tight ponytail thing, very professional and just a very stern look. And yeah, she was tough. She was by all means, she was tough and which made what happened near the end of this film a lot more intense, I felt like. So why they felt the need to soften her up and kind of make, you know, in the second film, it's like she was a, she's a, she was just a victim, you know, she was just a victim the whole time. And I didn't enjoy that. I liked the powerful female character from the first film. I definitely preferred that. And I thought it made it a better movie. So anyway, moving on, she subdues this bum. She throws him into a cell. And while she's in there with him, she puts him in there for, I can't remember why she goes back in there with him, but she does and the door shuts behind her and the fucking lights turn off. So now she's stuck in this cell with this crazy bum And there's all kinds of weird stuff going on, you know, already, and the lights are off. Well, she had a flashlight, and this scene was done way better in the first film, too. She has a flashlight, and she ends up dropping it, and she can't see anything. So, like I said, all the lights go off or whatever. Well, then all of a sudden, the flashlight turns on, and it raises like he, like the bum grabbed it, you know, and he's got it, like, just holding it in his hands, flashing around. She's saying, give me that back, give me my flashlight, whatever. And I'm not going to tell you again, whatever. So she's giving him all these like police commands and stuff. And then all of a sudden the flashlight pans over. And again, when I, the, the darkness in this movie, the shadows and everything, they just, they consume everything. You can't see, even if you strain your eyes, there's no outlines or nothing, which really to me is, and I've said it earlier, is one of the best parts in the film. So this flashlight pans over and you see the bum just slumped over in the corner. So now we know, again, another like chicken skin goosebump type part where the, you know, the cackles on the back of your neck are standing up. You're like, oh, my God, who has the flashlight? Because the bum's there. She's there. So, of course, she's freaking out. And while the flashlight is shining on the bum and just kind of shining around the room, she hears a woman's voice say, I'm going to hurt you. And then there's a quick flash of the light showing on this girl with these bloody bags on their heads with the pentagram and stuff. And it's like a greasy, wet weird sack on her head with this painted pentagram and it looks really cool and you see it for just a second and that is another part of these films is that they take all these like spooky jump scare kind of scenes and they're real instant so your your eyes are still trying to adjust to the dark it'll hit you with this bright flash of something scary and then it immediately takes it away so your brain is kind of taking this mental snapshot of it you're not really for sure what you saw but you know you saw enough to scare the shit out of you so uh that's that's a very good use, you know, a low budget use of that skill to to build, you know, the spookiness. Anyway, she gets out of the cell. She ends up locking the guy in there. She goes back to the desk. And again, all this stuff is happening and she just sits in the chair kind of having this mental, you know, decision with herself of whether or not she's going to stay. So what does she do? She starts repeating 
different, you know, stuff out of the police handbook or maybe the police officer's code or whatever it is that she's keeps saying over and over again to kind of bring her back down to earth other than just leaving because she's not going to leave because that would be a sign of her failing on her first day at the job. And that's just not something she's going to settle with. You know, as she's doing this, she leans back in her chair and she looks up and it says S-O-W painted in red on the ceiling. So like I said, once this movie starts rolling, it hits you with a couple of things and it just keeps going. It doesn't really stall once we start getting into the freaky stuff, which is cool. After seeing this, Officer Lauren decides to go and check all the locks again. And she winds up at the back of the station and there's a lady out there. This is a very awkward scene. And it was an awkward scene in both movies. I know they kept it you know, as a callback to the old movie. But she starts talking to this prostitute named Marigold, who was probably one of my favorite characters, even though it was really... Well, no, Officer Lauren's my favorite character, I'd say. I just liked her. She was just so tough, you know. But the uh, but Mar- Marigold, I guess, was the opposite of that. She was a tough, very clean prostitute. But their conversation is so weird and out of place. But it's there to kind of give you the history of the things we don't know about the station. And I guess they couldn't find any other way to give all this backstory other than if she were to find some papers or something, but that would be kind of lame. So they just squeeze it in this real quick, tight scene of her talking to Marigold, the prostitute. Marigold tells her the the story of the Paymans. The Paymans was a satanic cult that murdered some girls. Her dad was involved on the raid and arrest. And as far as the public knew, and even Officer Lauren thought, is that they were killed by the cops. However, Marigold said that she was in the in the jail that night, and she that they were brought in, and that the payment cult ended up killing themselves in there, and they did a bunch, like, said a bunch of satanic stuff, and did some rituals, and killed themselves, and made a bunch of threats about how they're, they'll kill everyone, and they'll kill your families, and your future, and all this kind of stuff, so... Now we're starting to get an idea of who this could be or what this could be inside the police station that's, you know, jacking everybody up. But, you know, if they're going to tear this place down, like, does is the demon still going to haunt or the, the devil thing still going to haunt just like the area? Like, if the building's not there, what are you going to haunt then? Like a, you know, what if, they turn, <laughs> what if they turn it into just like a park or something or like a pond? Like, do you just haunt the pond? What do you do? What do you do, devil guy? What do you do, poltergeist? I don't know. Actually, you know what's funny is I do know. If you've seen a movie called A Ghost Story with Ben Affleck's brother in it, Casey Affleck, it shows exactly what I'm talking about. So if you want to know what that looks like, go see that movie. It's extremely odd and boring as shit. But it makes you think a lot. I will say that. It's super boring, and I hated it. And then the next day, I hated it. But then the third day, when I kind of thought about it, I was like, I think this movie was trying to tell me something. I think it was trying to teach me. Something. I'm not sure what, but my brain's trying to figure it out. But anyway, yeah, so it talks about what you, you know, how a ghost would haunt the same area. I don't know. Anyway, getting sidetracked. Let's get back into it. So after talking to Marigold, Officer Lauren comes back in, and there's an officer that comes to to visit her, and his name is Officer Price. And his character, he's he's an enduring guy, he's just like this kind of good-looking, enduring. A guy police officer that comes in. He's a little flirty with her, you know. Uh, nothing pervy or nothing like that. But, you know, he's just kind of giving her some some smiles and stuff as they're talking. And they have a good conversation. And she kind of gets relieved to finally talk to somebody. And they have this whole big scene that gives you a minute to pause and catch your breath. And then when he turns to leave, he has this huge, gory, like, hole in the back of his head. And we had learned earlier that the Payman family, 
that I guess Officer Lauren and that guy had saved four girls and that they ended up killing six girls and two cops. So now we know that that one cop that was just talking to her is one of the cops that was killed by the payments. And there is a cool thing about this hole, like, in the back of this guy's head that it's got, like, some stuff hanging out of it. The the effects were good for that. They really were. So a little while later, we get a couple of repeats of things. Officer Lauren starts to hallucinate some more. She's seeing more of these people with their their, uh, bags on their head. There is a cool scene of a body that's kind of moving in this weird inchworm style out in the hallway. And then all of a sudden it lifts up without using hands. So, like, if you were laying on your belly and you were to stand up, you know, without using hands or bending your knees, that's what this thing does, which is kind of cool. I, I I can understand how they probably did it with wires and stuff. You can kind of see the motion of how that is, but it's still a really cool effect, and it's, you know, unnerving to see. It's it's pretty neat. So she finally sees enough to where she decides she's going to leave. She's like, I'm out of here. This, it's just too much for me. I can't deal with this. You know, I thought I could do it, but I can't, so she wants to leave. But then the phone rings. The phone brings her back in. It's the girl saying that she had talked to earlier, the same girl, saying that she has escaped to the woods. And, you know, Officer Lauren says, you, you got to call dispatch and whatever. She ends up getting off the phone with her, but Officer, Officer Lauren calls dispatch. And at this point, she had the person's name and was giving her all the uh, information that she could, all the information that she gathered from the second phone call. And dispatch tells her that the girl that she's speaking with died a year ago. <gasps> oh and she said something, and, and he goes on to say something else about how there's three... There's there's family members that are linked to the murder, but they were part. Or I'm sorry, there was three that died in the jail cell that night, but it was part of a bigger commune. So he said it's probably just some of these people that are still, you know, part of the cult or the commune or whatever. They're just messing with you. They probably know she works there, know who's her dad is, and that's why they're screwing with her. Anyway, a couple other things happen, and she ends up seeing some crime scene pics or something like that, and then gets she pa- she gets hit with her own baton and passes out. I don't know. I can't. When I, as, I wrote, as I wrote the notes here that I'm reading over, I can't remember if she passed out, got hit with the baton. That doesn't make sense. She gets hit with her own baton. She wakes up, and some girl has her gun, has her gun, and has her at gunpoint. And, you know, she says that she's a follower of the cult dude, John Michael. He's the devil guy. He's the original, like, leader of that cult. And this is the one-year anniversary of death, and that she, Officer Lauren, should feel privileged that she's there, and that she is a part of whatever is about to take place. So we all realize this is all part of some plan that started with them hanging themselves in the cell a year ago. And as she tells her all this stuff, the girl takes the gun that she has, you know, the the cult member takes the gun, points it to her head, and shoots herself. And all, before she did that, she also told, like, again, telling her that this is all part of whatever ritual is taking place is her taking her own life. Now, this is the part where Officer Lauren, she ends up getting chased by, I guess, the dead girl from the phone or something like that, ends up chasing her. She's trying to get out of the place. She goes back to the front of the building. The door is locked. It won't let her out, so she gets her gun. She shoots the glass a couple of times, and the glass, which is, you know, again, they didn't have a lot of money for computer effects, but when she shoots the glass, it cracks where she shoots it at and then the cracks just kind of seal up like nothing's ever happened and again this is another one of those scenes where you realize that there's there's kind of no escaping any of this you know that whole you know no way out kind of thing is really just kind of crashing down at this point again a bunch of other stuff had happened way before i mean once you saw the guy with the hole in the back of his head she should have tried to leave then but she didn't so now she's stuck in there and can't even get out so to add to this officer lauren is freaking out she's in full panic mode 
at this point, she's getting hysterical and her phone, her cell phone rings and it's her dead dad. And she starts talking to her dead dad just like he's not dead, just having a normal conversation with her. So you can see at this point she has cracked because, again, she was this confident, strong, straight backed kind of uh, tough officer in the beginning and now she's in full hysterics talking to her dead dad on the phone as if he's really there and she's trying to tell him you know like i've I've tried dad i tried i'm gonna do it whatever and he's giving her this pep talk of like you know you've got to be better than me kind of thing you can do this don't disgrace our family name just a bunch of weird stuff and so she decides that she's going to stay not that she could leave anyway and then she walks in to go check on the bum or maybe he was yelling or something like that and he's hanging in the cell after she thought he was on the floor. So I guess like she sees him on the floor or something. But then when she opens the door, he's in there like hanging from the, from the ceiling, you know, just spinning in a weird circle or whatever, like people that are hanging in movies do for whatever reason. And then her radio, she's, she's continuing to hear these voices, this song from her radio. And it does a close up of the radio and it looks like it's leaking barbecue sauce. So I, I guess it's supposed to be blood, but I'm telling you, it looks like sweet baby Ray's barbecue sauce. To me. And this is a scene where we f- get our first, I would say, most clear look of the three that hung themselves in the cell. And they're in the flesh. And the main dude has this full, demonic, sharp teethed, weird looking face. And you can tell he has this large scarring on his face, which we find out later is like a, a pentagram. You might not be able to see it on, on that first glance because it's such a quick flash. So as she panics and tries to get away from all that, she ends up seeing the nice cop that had stopped by and saw that she saw earlier with the hole in the back of his head. And it's this crazy scene where he shoots himself in front of her. And it's a really just cool. I don't know. It's a well done scene. And the funny part about where all this is amping up and kind of coming to a head is you don't even realize that this is we're nearing the end of the movie. Because, again, you felt like you're just now starting to understand what's going on and she's starting to have this mental break. And I guess that's why maybe in Malin they wanted to show you a little more because they felt like it spent the whole movie building all this up and then all of a sudden it just kind of ends. But I think that's sort of the beauty of it. So she sees this guy, shoots himself, she starts running around and all of a sudden there's cult members, people with little bags on their heads are running around and the building is full of them. So she starts getting in a shootout with them there at the station They're all yelling stuff at her. You know, you can hear voices come from just every direction. You know, there's no way to tell where they're coming from, whether it's the hallways or the rooms. And they're just coming from all around. And then she gets shot from the dark. And then as she's going through here and she, you know, she drops a couple of them. And as she's going through, she's giving them police commands and all this kind of stuff. And she's, you know, acing a couple of these guys. And then all of a sudden she gets shot and she hits the ground. And it's in the dark, so you can't tell, you know, which one of these cult people shot her. And holy shit, out of the darkness comes the sergeant from the beginning of the movie. The guy that told her, you know, what her job was for the night and all that. And I'll tell you, when you first see it, you think that he's one of them. You know, he was acting really weird in the beginning. And I think maybe that's why that scene was so weird. So that this scene at the end would be that much more confusing, I guess. Because when you first see him, you think... What in the fuck is going on? Now, there is a cool part, too, where once she is shot, again, the lights are all out in certain spots or whatever, so she's in the dark, but there is this flashlight, this really, really bright, intense flashlight on her face, so she can't really see anything, but her face is fully illuminated for this final scene, which I thought had a cool effect because it's so dark around her because it's so bright on her face, like a stage light almost. 
and she's looking at her sergeant. She's so confused and sad and just all, you know, all these different emotions are kind of crushing in on her at once as she's looking at the sergeant and the sergeant is calling it all in. And he's just looking at her just, I guess, with sorrow really is the best way I can describe that. And she turns and look and it's the hazmat guys. So you realize that she's been running around the building just shooting the shit out of these hazmat guys. And it plays a scene of her kind of like a flashback scene of her going to the door and the hazmat guy standing in the doorway being like, you know, what are you doing? You're crazy. Don't shoot me. Don't kill me. Whatever. And he just sends, she just ends up, you know, shooting him dead right there, right before she got shot. And this is the beauty of this film is it has, it, it put like, I don't know. It's emotional at this point, right? There's this feeling of hopelessness and betrayal and the bad guy winning and all hope lost kind of thing like you never had a chance so you thought throughout this movie you had a chance and then you find out the end that you never did it was an illusion it was all part of the plan and by being there that night not only did you not know you were part of the plan but you've been a part of the plan since they killed themselves a year ago and it started with them killing themselves and your dad and all this other stuff so yeah, I just really enjoyed that a lot better than them just telling me, hey, here's who the bad guys are, here's what they look like, here's how we're going to fight them, here's how this is going to end. And with our closing scene, we see the three that hung themselves in the, the cell with the main guy walk up to her, and the two girls got, I think maybe they still have the bags on their heads, and it shows her like singing that song that's kind of been playing intermittently throughout the movie. She starts singing the song that they were singing, that whole Freddy Krueger style you know, song that they were sing song in throughout the film and the the main guy that had the big pentagram on his face you get a really good close-up of him and he's putting a bag over herself essentially making her one of the new demon people sacrifice things i guess that's going to follow people around and haunt that station well since they're tearing it down i don't know what the fuck they're going to haunt but there it is now this is a little different from the other movie because they resurrect this weird demon and the funniest thing is in the Malum episode on Gravely Serious uh, Michael Terrace said the guy looked like a Pokemon and he 100% looks like a fucking Pokemon in the Malum movie so again they're showing us what to be scared of where in this one all we ever saw was the cult leader with the pentagram and the sharp teeth and I thought that was really cool and he was also a better character in the first film than in the second one he was portrayed as this Beatles looking dude with this quaff you know haircut and weird butterscotch suit where in the first one he looked more like your charles manson type uh serial killer cult leader type guy so yeah that is the movie that is last shift i uh, definitely enjoyed it better than the second one you'll have to let me know what you think if you've seen both films comment shoot me an email whatever you want to do i'd love to know what you think about it and just a little bit of business here before we close the show if you have an idea of a movie to cover or if you're an indie author and you want to send me a book to review. Or another thing I want to start doing is if you are a writer and you have a short story that you would like for me to read on the show with a little bit of theatrics behind it, please send that in to justjameshorrorpodcast at gmail.com. I'll review it. If I can use it, I will send definitely read your story in. on the show. But thanks for listening. This has been the Just James Horror Review. If you like what you hear, like, subscribe, go on to Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, all those things. Follow, listen to our back old episodes. That would be awesome. Helps the show out a bunch. I'm Just James. You're awesome. Take care.
uh, stout, uh, fuck. She's stout. Was she a goddamn teapot? Shit. Come on, James.